What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. In 1941, at the United Gospel Tabernacle Church, Billy Graham preached his first official sermon as a seminary student attending Wheaton College up in Chicago, Illinois. His simple, direct message about sin and salvation that he delivered that day with great passion would eventually be heard in crusade gatherings all around the world. It was in 1947 when Graham preached his very first citywide crusade in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with about 6,000 people in attendance. And at the age of 30, with a span of eight weeks, with a huge tent meeting at the corner of Washington Boulevard and Hill Street in the city of Los Angeles, is when God would catapult his ministry to another level. You see, over the course of those eight weeks, some 350,000 people heard him preach the gospel at the campaign called the Greater Los Angeles Billy Graham Crusade. And it was at that specific event that God would open up a doorway for God to raise up a national, international evangelist that we hear about. And from 1947 to 2005, he, he traveled all over the world, conducting 417 crusades in 185 countries and or territories on six different continents. But it was in South Korea that he preached to the largest known gathering in all of his crusades. The picture that you're seeing right now is, is from 1973. In fact, it's, it's around the time of his meeting there from May the 30th to June 3rd, 1973, when an estimated, on this day right here, this picture, an estimated 1.1 million people gathered in South Korea to hear Billy Graham preach the word of God. An estimated 3.2 million people come to hear him or came to hear him during this crusade gathering in South Korea. The picture that you're seeing right now, it is estimated that most of the ones standing there traveled to hear him by foot. And this was the final service on an airstrip. And we are told by the historians that approximately 75,000 people came to Christ at that crusade. We don't know if that was the exact number, but God knows. But on that day, Billy Graham, by God's grace and his sovereign plan for his life, preached the gospel to more people in one service than has ever been in recorded history. And the message, you can go back and, and listen to his sermon from that day. His text was when, from John chapter 15 and verse 13. And that verse specifically says, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But in, in the previous verses and in the following verses of, of that chapter, and in the context, there's a phrase 
that Graham reiterated over and over and over again in his sermon that day. And it was three words, love one another. In fact, standing to his right there was a translator. His, uh, I believe his name was Billy Kim. And many people say that Billy Kim studied all of his sermons and was doing his best to translate for Billy Graham. And some people say that God raised up Billy Kim to preach that day with magnificent passion, although he was translating from the late Reverend Billy Graham. I bring that up to say that, that Billy Graham was preaching a message that, that really wasn't his message. And it wasn't the reformer's message like Luther and Calvin and, Z, and Zwingli. And it wasn't the message of those in the dark ages when the word of God was in a sense kind of being suppressed by Roman Catholicism. And it wasn't even a message preached by the early church fathers. It was a message originated by Jesus Christ himself. And not even John. You see, John was one of the apostles. And in John's writings, he is one. In fact, you can, you can just go to a Bible concordance or, or a search engine on Google and just type in the words, love one another in the Bible. And you'll realize that John referenced this phrase more than any other writer in the New Testament. He references this phrase in the Gospel of John multiple times. In 1 John, right here in our text, uh, uh, multiple times. And in 2 John, but also the Apostle Paul mentions this in Romans and, Thessalon and Thessalonians. And Peter mentions it in his first chapter. This is a message that Jesus preached. And the apostles, such as John, begin to echo in the early church book called Acts. And that every generation since the apostles and Christ himself the church has preached. And I submit to you today that the message, love one another, is our message to the world today is also. And it should be our message to each other. You see, we give this idea that we are called to, to go out into the world and, and love the world. But at first and foremost, we are called to love each other here, our brothers and sisters. And then that love is to extend outside these walls and outside this congregation into the Roanoke area and abroad. In addition to the three words, love one another, I want to share with you this key thought. That if you walk away with anything, this is the message for today. God has called every believer to love one another. This message today is not profound. This message today is not new. But this message today is rooted and anchored in the word of God. And if you've ever tried to read through the New Testament, you will clearly find that the Bible says to love God and to love one another. And I know that this passage in the New Testament speaks about the call for all of us to love each other. But how has God called us to love one another? Well, today I want to draw your attention here to these several verses in 1 John to share with you three specific ways that God has called us to love each other. The first one is found in verses 11 through 15. And listen to these words. This is, I believe, the meaning behind verses 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. God has called us to love one another selflessly. God has called us to love one another selflessly. We see that is exactly how God 
loves us selflessly. It is a selfless love. Now, just to bring you up to speed, John the Apostle, who studied under Jesus Christ, is not only the author of this epistle, but also the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation in your New Testament. And John is the last surviving apostle, and to our best knowledge, he was the only apostle who died a natural death. And just before he was exiled to Patmos, we think that John received the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write down these words. And so this is around sometime between 90 and 95 AD, one of the final messages God gave to the apostles that is survived into the canon of Scripture. And he's writing uh, two major points in this book. One, God is light. And from chapter one, verse one, all the way to chapter three, verse 10, he is reiterating this theme that God is light. But now he is emphasizing a second point. God is love. And chapter three, chapter four, and chapter five emphasizes this message. And here in verses 11 through 15, we see that God has called you, God has called me to love one another selflessly. Look at verse 11 and 12. What does this mean? Well, well, the first way I believe, or the first way I want to answer this question is this thought. Selfless love puts others before themselves. Selfless love puts others before themselves. Now let's look at verse 11 before we dive into this thought. The Bible says in verse 11, for this message, this this literally means an announcement that has been heard. And he says, this is an announcement or a message that has been heard from the beginning. Now, this does not necessarily mean from the very beginning of time. This, I believe, in the context of 1 John, means from the very beginning of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So you go back and you study the gospel of John and the four gospels, and you realize that Jesus came preaching love, God, love, people. And so he says here, the message that we have heard from the very beginning when we were sitting underneath the ministry of Christ, when we were listening to him and hearing him and watching and observing him, he said, love one another. The word should here gives this idea that it is our moral obligation that we have to do this because of the way that God has loved us. But now look at verse 12. Here John goes back to the Old Testament and brings up an Old Testament character by the name of Cain. Could you say Cain with me? Cain. Cain and Abel. Good job. Bible scholars. That's awesome. Genesis chapter 1 speaks about the origin of the world. And I believe that God created the world as he said he did in Genesis chapter 1. I may not understand all the science behind it. I may not understand all the details behind it. But that is what I firmly believe. Because on a tablet of stone in the book of Exodus, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he said, for in six days, God made heaven and earth the sea, and all that in them is. So I believe that God created the world in Genesis 1 as he said he did. And then in chapter 2, we see that God places man in a garden. But in chapter 3, or excuse me, we see that all these course of events, God creates Adam and God creates Eve. And then in chapter 3, we see they're in the garden. And then and Satan is in the form of a serpent and deceives them. And they partake in eating the forbidden fruit that God commanded them not to eat. And they entered a fallen state. But in chapter 4, we read about two brothers, Cain and Abel. And John references this. Verse 12 says, not as Cain. That is, Cain did not love his brother. In fact, Cain murdered his brother. 
And it was over this idea of sacrifice. And if you're, if you're a student of the Bible, then you'll read in Genesis chapter 3 where the Bible says that, that it implies that Adam and Eve had a sacrifice because of what was going on in verse 21. And then it also implies that they were to teach their children and descendants that God demands a living animal sacrifice and the shedding of blood. And so Abel brought a sacrifice of that nature, but Cain did not. Scholars debate this, of course, but we believe that Cain knew what he was supposed to do and refused to do it and began to become jealous over Abel. And that jealous turned into hatred and that hatred turned into murder. And so wherever you see murder, you always see hatred and jealousy. And so the Bible says that Cain, who was of that wicked one, this gives the idea of, of somebody who is wicked, evil, and pernicious. That is somebody who is conniving and twisting and pulling people along to corrupt them. And that's what Satan does with all of us. He tries to corrupt us from the inside out. But then it says that he slew his brother. This gives the same word that would be used in the Old Testament of a slaughter and butchering a sacrifice. Literally, I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but what they would do in the Old Testament sacrifice is they would slice the throat of the animal and lay that animal on the altar. And it gives the idea that the same word that is being used here is for Cain slaying his brother. Gives the idea that he was a serial killer and committed homicide. And the Bible says, why would he do this? His own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain was jealous from what Abel did and what Abel received of God. And it turned to hatred and he murdered him. And what we learn about this story and this reference here is selfless love puts others before themselves. Cain was all about me, myself, and I. He was all about me, 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 me. My, 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 my. I, 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 I. And self, 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 self. And as I read this text, surely I, I've never murdered anybody by God's grace. And I hope that I never will. And I hope that you never will either by God's grace. But I want to say this, that the same nature that Cain had is the same nature that we have today. And then if we allow jealousy and hatred to harbor in our hearts, then it, it, it has the potentiality of transitioning and transforming into murder. And so today I want to encourage you to put others before yourself. And that's what it means to have a selfless love. Instead of thinking about me, myself, and I, you're going to think about others around you and how you can serve them. But that was not Cain's story. But now look at verse 13. Remember, God has called us to love one another selflessly. And as we read verses thir verse 13, we think about this, the second thought here, about what does this mean about selfless love? Selfless love knows the world will hate them. When Jesus was on this earth, he talked about how we are to love those who hate us and love those who persecute us. It's easy to scratch somebody's back when they scratch our back. It's easy to pat somebody uh, on the back when they, when they do something if they've done that for us. It's easy to shake somebody's hand or give them a high five or give them a hug if they've given us a hug or a handshake in return or beforehand. But it is hard 
to love that person who refuses to shake your hand, who refuses to acknowledge your existence, and who shows hatred towards you. And so here the Bible says, John is writing to these believers here, and he says, do not be amazed or do not have this sense of awe or marvel when this world, those who are unregenerate, not born again and don't know Christ, will hate you. That is their nature. It is the world's nature to, to, to dish out hatred, but it is the church's nature to dish out love. So in a hostile world that's gonna hate our message and hate our Christ and hate us because of what we are attached to, we are called to extend love to them because that's what Jesus did. Remember Jesus, he was on this earth and, and people were spitting on him and beating him and whipping him and crucifying him, but he was selfless because he laid his life down as we read about in this text. This word hatred, it gives the idea that you detest somebody in such a degree that you're gonna wish unwill upon them or ill upon them and create unwill and ill in their life. But that's not the mark of a believer. And that leads us to verse 14 and 15. John speaks about Cain, this idea he's an example of an unbeliever, of somebody who practices um, hatred and jealousy and, and it, it extends to murder. And he says, don't, don't, don't be amazed when all the world hates you in a way like Cain hated his brother Abel. Because in verse 14, we read about this second thought here, our third thought, excuse me, selfless love refuses to show hatred to anybody or to anyone. That's the mark of a child of God. Do you love like God loves? Remember, John is writing to these believers because this, this ancient idea of, that would eventually be called Gnosticism where they're separating the humanity and deity of from Christ and they're going around and saying, hey, I can live however I want to live. It doesn't really matter. And so Jesus is being presented here as the son of God and John is saying, hey, you gotta believe that Christ is the son of God and then if you, when you believe and entrust in him, it's gonna change how you think and how you behave and then it's gonna change how you love. You're gonna display love to all those that you see. And he says, we know, this word here, know, is the word for intellectual knowledge. That is, you have been totally convinced intellectually that you have passed from death to life. That is, you're no longer a child of Satan, you're now a child of God. And it says, because we love the brethren, or our brothers and sisters. He that loves not, listen to this, this is tough. He that loves not, his brother abides in death. This word abide, it's in the present tense here. And it gives this idea of, of a continual aspect of abiding. That is when you do not show love to others, you are demonstrating God's love is not in you. And that's tough. And it says in verse 15, whoever hates that is, detesting somebody in such a way that you wish ill and create ill or and or create ill upon them. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now notice it says brother here. Because the idea here is he's talking about the household of faith. That is, if you extend hatred to a fellow brother who knows Christ or a fellow sister who knows Christ, then you don't, you don't love God that's what he's saying here. Because he says here that if you can't love the church and you call yourself a Christian, how can you love the people outside these walls? 
And he says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. That is a manslayer like Cain. I believe that John has in his mind the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when Jesus said, hey, thou shalt not commit adultery. But he said, if you even lust after somebody, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he goes on to to take the law and takes it to another whole degree. And I believe that John has in his mind the Sermon on the Mount when Christ was speaking in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 about some of these things. And he says, if you even hate somebody, God classifies you as a murderer and manslayer. And now notice these words here. These are the troubling words. It says, you know, this is, a similar word here. You know, this is the word that is the intellectual knowledge of knowing. You've been fully convinced in your mind that no murderer or manslayer has eternal life abiding, residing, remaining in him. There's several different theories about this verse. I'm not going to bore you with all of them. I think all of them have, have an aspect of truth here. But, but the point is simply this. is somebody who knows Christ as Savior, um, their, their habits of life is not going to be jealousy. It's not going to be hatred. It's not going to be murder. Can somebody who's a believer have jealousy in their heart and have hatred and commit murder? It is possible. Because a clear reading of the Bible re- reveals that believers have at one point in their life killed somebody. But the point is simply this. Is that those who are continually walking in the light of God's word and in the spirit of God is not going to give place to hatred, jealousy, or allow themselves to succumb to the temptation of murder. Here it gives the idea, I think, that John was combating this concept that we can live however we want to live. I can say I love God, but I can hate people. I can be jealous, and if I want to, I could really kill somebody. But John is combating that by this dogmatic statement here. That anybody who practices on a continual basis murder is not somebody who knows Christ. And does not have eternal life in them. And so they would need to do what we all need to do. We are all lost and we are all, at one point we are all lost and we are all condemned. We are running far away from God and God stepped in and saved us by his gracious hand. And those who practice murder and practice hatred and practice jealousy, need to repent as well. God has called us to love one another selflessly. So we are not gonna allow hatred to be a part of our life. We are are gonna realize that, that people are gonna hate us and then we are gonna put others before ourselves. That's selfless love. But secondly today, Love one another, it means selfless love, but, but it also means sacrificial love. So the second way God has called us to love is this. God has called us to love one another sacrificially. God has called us to love one another sacrificially. Selfless love and sacrificial love. That is God's calling on our life. God has called every believer to love one another. But what is sacrificial love or what does sacrificial love even mean or what does it reveal? Specifically, what does it reveal about us and what does it reveal about God? Well, I believe verse 16 opens the doorway for us to answer those questions. Notice the first part of verse 16. It says, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. The first thought I want to share with you from this part of the verse is sacrificial love reveals the love of God. That is, if you're going around and you're sacrificing 
parts of your life as an, uh, as an expression of love, you are displaying God's love to the world. When you sacrifice your time for others, when you sacrifice your talents for others, when you sacrifice your treasures for others, you are literally displaying God's sacrificial love. It says, hereby perceive, this word means to understand the love of God. It says, because he laid down his life for us. Praise God for this verse. Praise God that this resembles John's other gospel, or excuse me, John's gospel and, and John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is God's love being on display for all the world to see. And when we display sacrificial love, it reveals the love of God. When you show your wife sacrificial love, you are displaying God's love. When you show your children sacrificial love, you are displaying God's love. When you show your extended family this kind of love, you're displaying God's love. When you show your next door neighbor or your neighbors, the people on your same street or your neighborhood or in your community or at your workplace, you are displaying the love of God. Or here's one, when you display this kind of love on social media like Facebook and TikTok or whatever you got going on today, you're displaying God's love through the internet. And we need more of that love in this culture today. Because this culture is all about me, myself, and I. And me, myself, and I is all about selfless love. Or excuse me, self-full love. And it rejects selfless love. And because it, it rejects selfless love, it also rejects sacrificial love. That is when, when the person who, who, who wants to receive love but not extend that love. And so today we're called to extend that love. And now, now notice the verse it goes on to say. It says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. As I read this thought here, it, it reveals, I believe, another thought here. A sacrificial love reveals the grace of God. It says we ought. This gives the idea that it is our moral obligation. That is, if God has loved us in this way, we have to do this. There's, there's no, it's not a recommendation. It is God's demand. And it says we ought to lay down. We know that when Jesus laid down his life, he did it willingly. He did it selflessly and sacrificially. It's hard to fathom that he would literally lay down his rights. We are Americans and we grab onto our rights as citizens of this nation. And if anybody tries to barge in and take anything that we think is our right away from us, man, we go to war. But Jesus laid down every aspect of his rights as a human being and said, I'm gonna die for the sins of the world, for adultery, homosexuality, sexual immorality, hatred, jealousy, theft, murder, coveting. The list goes on. Jesus died for sin. And this passage reveals that, that the way that Jesus sacrificed for others is the same way that we are called to do that. And it reveals not just God's love, but it reveals God's grace. I don't deserve that kind of love. Listen, there is nothing good in me that I could measure up to this holy God that we serve where he would love me 
in that way. It's his grace. It is the unmerited love and favor. And along with that, it says, laid on our lives for the brethren. As I read this, I think about sacrificial love thoroughly reveals the mercy of God. This is mercy. That is giving to somebody something they don't deserve. If I just walked up to you and said, hey, here's $1,000, God bless. But you didn't mow my grass. You didn't shovel my driveway. Um, you didn't fix my AC unit when it went out. You didn't lay the carpet or the flooring in my house. Or you didn't do this, that, or the third for me. You didn't earn that. It was a gift. And the same way is God gave us this great gift called his son. And that is mercy and grace and love. And when we display sacrificial love, we are literally displaying these attributes of God. God has called us to love one another sacrificially and selflessly. But the third way that I believe God has called us to love is found in verses 17 and 18. And that is this. God has called us to love one another sympathetically. God has called us to love one another sympathetically. That is, we are called to show sympathy towards others. Sympathy is something that we often neglect as Christians. And in fact, as I read, and as I've been meditating in verse 17, I'm not going to lie to you today, I am guilty as charged of not always practicing this. Let me give you an example here. As we read verse 17, um, we're, we're thinking about this thought. Sympathetic love is moved with compassion. That's, that's what it is. It pities those who are in need. That is the very basic necessities of life. That is food, water, clothing, and shelter. And years ago, I guess God moved me and stirred me to go to Chick-fil-A and buy gift cards and, and to go down whenever I would see these people standing on the side of the street with these um, signs there. I would go park my car and I would walk on the median and hand them a gift card to Chick-fil-A and talk to them and try to share Jesus with them and then ask if I can pray over them. And I would do that. And I did it for quite some time until one of those people began to scoff and mock me because I gave gift cards instead of cash. And I said to myself, you know what? I just won't give any of you anything. And I say that to say this, is that just as kind of that mentality kind of was harboring in my heart for some of these people, when we should be generous, we should show compassion and pity these people in need, even though we know that many of them are probably um, panhandlers and, and crooks and con artists. But that should not negate the fact that we are called to show this level of compassion. When it says, whoever um, has this world's goods. In other words, if we have the, all the necessities in life and we have extra and abundance and we can give to those who are in need. And the Bible says we see. This means to observe in detail and to be able to discern that this person is definitely in need. It says, whoever sees their brother. Specifically, it's meaning us right here in the church, not necessarily outside these walls, but our brothers and sisters in the household of faith. If we see our own brother and sister have a need like this and we close up the bowels of compassion, the Bible says, how can God's love dwell in that person? And so as I read this passage, I was convicted that I need to show more love to those who are on the side of the street. No matter their motives. And we need to show more love to each other. Right here. But then look at verse 18. 
I believe sympathetic love is moved with compassion at first, but then in verse 18, we see that it will be moved to action. Sympathetic love is moved to action. That is, we begin to have compassion. That means we begin to develop pity for those who are in need, and we sympathize with them, and we say, how can we help? And then we take action. My little children, he writes, these are the young converted ones. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed. This means we are going to get out and we are going to put our we're going to put footsteps to our prayers if you will or we're going to stop talking about it and we're going to start living it out. And so, let me ask you this. In what ways are you displaying compassion to those around you in your life? Family, friends, foes, people around you in your context or those that you meet outside of your entire context and people you don't even know. Are we showing love? Then the last thought I want to share with you is this. Sympathetic love is moved from verification. This word truth. Would you say truth with me? Truth. Say it again. Truth. One more time. Truth. It says, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is something that has been verified and it is factual. Fact checker. You ever heard of those people? You can go on wikipedia.com, you can change something, but they have a high, they've hired a staff that go in and fact check those things. They can come in and rearrange what it said to make sure it's actual truth. We all need fact checkers in our life for sure, but let me share with you God's fact checker. You ready for it? If you're showing love, it's a fact checker that you have God's love in you. Do you have that kind of love? You know, a lot of times we talk about these Greek terms for love. And while there are several Greek words for love in the Greek language, there are four that is generally used in a biblical context. The first one is called eros, and it refers to a romantic love, and it is the only one of the four words that I want to share with you that's not mentioned in the Bible, or the New Testament, rather. The second one is storge. And it refers to a family love like that of a mother for a son or a brother or, her, or, his, or a mother and her son or a brother and his sister. And a form of this word is used by Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and Romans 1. But the third one is, you've heard of this one, it's phileo. It is the word that we, that we derive the, the phrase brotherly love and Philadelphia gets its name from. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul all use this word in their letters and their writings. But the fourth and final one is agape. Would you say that with me? Agape. This word is the most used word for love in the New Testament. And it has over 100 references. And it's used by Matthew, Luke, John, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, Peter, and Jude. And this word refers to God's love that he has had for the world, and that Christians are called to emulate this love to others. So how can we define this love? God's love is selfless, sacrificial, and contains sympathy. And that is the love that we are to display to all the world. And you know what's interesting? Out of all those Greek words, the word used right here in our passage today is the word agape or agapao. And it literally is the verb form of that we are called to have a moral and social concept of God's love in this society and culture. So today, as we think about all these verses and all this thing, I want to share this with you. Three words, love one another. Love one another. Would you say that with me, church? Love one another. 
That is the message God has called us to do the rest of our lives. And may God help us to do that, not just today, but every day. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.